Hey, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. This episode is sponsored by Solvetto. Continuous learning is the driver for success, growth, and well-being. Learn or expire. Keep your Azure skills up to date. Act now by going to solvetto.fi slash pro. I'm Tobias. I'm back again with UC. What's up? Hey, Tobias. I spent the better portion of last week at the time of recording this, of the last week in, in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, I'm part of the team planning for the upcoming European Power Platform Conference, and that takes place in June 2023 in Dublin as well. And it did not rain a single time. We were there for four days, no rain. It was sunny, it was almost warm. Super long days. It's funny when you go to a sort of an off-site like this. You go in there, you have a plan, you have your goals, you get to those, you do immensely long days. It's funny how you sort of devolve into this sort of a bubble that nothing else matters anymore. Obviously, you will call home and, and check up with the kids and everything else, but everything else sort of becomes secondary in your life. But I'm still happy it didn't rain a single time. Yeah, I, I really like those like point efforts when you do an offsite or, or you bring your team or you bring an engagement, um, you know, a couple of days you book at a conference room or a hotel somewhere and you, you just get some strategy done or, or execute on some decisions. That's pretty fun. So that's relatable. On my side, something entirely different. I am back into looking at some IoT stuff for my house. Yes. I don't think the current energy crisis really surpassed anyone in Europe by now. And so I'm exploring the use of something called smart thermostats, which I think a lot of people know about. You can put these on the old radiators and for insights in our house, all the radiators, they are very old uh, with the hot water running through the pipes under the floor. So reading reviews and obviously marketing material, they are supposedly saving you a lot of wasted heat and energy uh, and therefore also saves on electrical consumption, which at the end of the day would hopefully bring down the bill. My dilemma here is which one do I choose to try out? Because they're fairly expensive. I think they're 80 to 90 euros per thermostat on average across all the different brands. And we have, I think, 11 or 12 radiators in the house. So there's quite a few gadgets we need to use. And there are cheaper ones for 20 euros. There's more expensive ones for 200 euros. I just don't know which one to choose. So can it integrate with other things? Uh, you know, What are the key brands to choose from? And things like that. So this is my latest dilemma that I really need to dig into. So, um, of course, if, if anyone listening in uh, and you have experience with these smart thermostats you put on a radiator, um, you know, give us a shout out on on Twitter and let's see if if we can learn something about your experience on that, because it's uh, it's something that is needed to bring down the bill. It's great for sustainability because we can reduce the electrical consumption uh, produced by our heating pump. And it's also a fun thing because anything that you can kind of connect to your smart home it's fun. So that's it. For for a moment when you said it's expensive at 80 euro a piece, I'm like, yeah, Toby, maybe do not build a house. Because when you're building a house, if you get an invoice of less than 10,000, you're immensely happy. Oh, this is so cheap this week. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. So today we will be talking about Azure files with Azure Active Directory Kerberos. That's a lot of, lot of technology in there. And the the thinking and background for this episode is that about a year and a half ago, we did episode 96 
And that was about moving towards a cloud-only architecture. And I didn't re listen that episode, uh, but I recall we did sort of briefly mention that the Kerberos support coming from Azure AD would, would sort of solve a lot of these little pesky technology problems, especially if you work in a hybrid setup, meaning you have something in on-premises, you have Azure AD, you have workloads in the cloud, maybe M365, but you still have users with workstations, laptops, VPNs, and all of the sort of the old world, if you will. So the idea here is that let's take a look at this fairly tiny thing, but it, it's an interesting progress from Microsoft that resolves a couple of problems. But before we sort of dive deep down into the problem, uh, so Toby, at home, I, I know, and I think everybody in the audience by now know that you don't have a massive on-premises footprint. But for for you normally, do you still access file shares? Do you sort of play around with, with, with these topics or are you exposed to, let's say, file shares or is everything for you in SharePoint or Teams or something similar? Yeah, it's a, that's a good question. Um, everything that I do and everything I have done in my previous roles in companies as well are, you know, one way or the other cloud hosted. So in OneDrive or Dropbox, if you use that or something else. Um, so file shares is something that I only came across when I worked with customers and they had an on-prem data center or they had, you know, legacy lift and shift, shift migrations they wanted to do to the cloud and they wanted to kind of manage their uh, their cloud estate uh, and, and their migration project with uh, as small footprint as possible, not just footprint on the climate, but also footprint in um, or not footprint, but the like the resources they used. They they wanted to get moving as quickly as possible. Then they kind of one to one moved their file shares to the cloud. Um, but that's the only kind of experience I have in modern day with file shares. But I think we all remember the H colon for your home catalog or the P colon, all these kind of uh, things you had. You opened something called My Computer. I don't even know if uh, uh, Windows has My Computer today. Maybe it does. Uh, it, it probably does, or just computer. And under there, you had the different file shares that were mapped to your specific workstation. And if you were using policies, you could roll out. So this workstation should automatically map up Z colon because that's a specific drive that only some users could access and stuff like that. So in enterprises, it's very much used still. Personally, I do not have a lot of exposure to, uh, to file shares. And the only exposure I, I have to Kerberos, so this is an interesting episode because I'm going to learn a lot. The only exposure I have to that is when setting up SharePoint farms back in the day, I know that we we could use Kerberos for, uh, for some of those things as well. That wasn't my strong suit. That was not what I focused on. But that's kind of the only experience I have. So very limited exposure, limited experience. Today, everything is cloud first, cloud only for me. So no file shares, which I'm happy about. Makes makes sense, and in in a way, cloud only, cloud first, everything modern. It it sort of doesn't even introduce this problem. But funnily enough, a lot of the projects I get to work on involve something from on premises or the legacy world, 
and one of these problems is is with file shares. And, and when I say file shares, it's those H and T and K drives that are typically automatically mounted on the workstations, perhaps in a logon script. And then when you open those network drives, you don't usually anymore have your my documents in there. Your my documents have been migrated with, with OneDrive for Business to the cloud already. So they are your files in the cloud. That problem sort of has been resolved. But these file shares are often quite large, maybe terabytes of data dating back to 25 years ago. And you simply cannot just say, let's delete everything. But you also cannot say, let's just lift and shift this to where exactly? Because if you lift and shift this to SharePoint, you sort of lose some of the capabilities like the, the, the custom permissions that have been painstakingly set over the past 20 years, who gets access to what? That's one problem. The second problem is that you often have files that are not editable. So they are not text files or, or Office documents. They are installation media, backup files, all sorts of binary files that you never ever want to edit anymore. It sort of is an archive on those file shares. So the problem is we need this. Nobody has the budget or the time to sort of sift through everything and, and decide what goes to long-term archival and whatever that solution will be, what goes to Teams, what goes directly to SharePoint or OneDrive and, and what gets deleted. So now that we have the problem, we still want to perhaps migrate these file shares from those servers, which are on-prem. We want to migrate those files to the cloud and the one-to-one the -one mapping, if you will, for, for that on the platform side is Azure Storage. Because in Azure Storage, you can just dump those files in there. Then you can create an Azure file share and you can mount that file share on your workstation as a K or T or P drive again. So, so this is sort of the dream that fixes the legacy problem without requiring a lot of work in between. Have I convinced you enough to start setting up your own file share now? <laughs> Not to set up my file share, but uh, to echo something that you said there with my perspective is, I have used Azure storage accounts and file shares and mapped them to my drive, to my to my computer. So I did get like a, a local kind of drive, looks like a local drive, but it's actually in sync with Azure storage. So, so I, I did that in a sort of experiment. It wasn't easy when I did it because there was a lot of hoops and loops that I had to go through to get that working, but I think that's better now. So from that perspective, like, again, cloud first, my file share is in the cloud. So do I use file shares? Sure, I, I do occasionally use it, but not from on-prem. So Azure storage account, use a file share on that, on that account and then map that one. You know, that way I still, to some extent, use file shares, but not very often anymore. Exactly, and when you go with this approach, Azure Storage, Azure File Share, copy your files in there. In order to be able to mount that file share as a network drive, you need to authenticate against the file share. And, and you really, by default, you only have one way. You have to use the storage account key. And that sort of is the master key. So whoever has that has full access to everything in the file share. And ideally, this is not how we want to play this out. We want to have those individual permissions, but those permissions have been defined previously against the on-premises Active Directory identities. 
and we do not have those by default in the Azure File Share. So previously, there was a setting for for synchronizing Active Directory secure IDs, the seeds of the users to the file share, and this sort of fixed the problem. But then we got another problem. In order to mount the network drive with your AD credentials, not Azure AD, but AD credentials, you would need to have a line of sight to your on-premises Active Directory domain controller. So this subsequently requires you need to have a VPN on or you need to be physically at the office. So again, we sort of have something modern in the cloud, but we are relying so heavily on the on the legacy on-premises stuff that it's it's not really fixing the problem for us. So with this intro, we, we now get to the modern approach. But before we sort of go through that, and there's a couple of bits and pieces we need to discuss, but before before we get to that, when was the last time you actually manually handcrafted a new AD domain controller? Do you re still recall how it was done back in the day? That's a great question. That's like the <laughs> unexpected question of the episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've done that a lot. And like you would run the DZ promo and to promote any server to a domain controller, and then you would kind of take it that way, if I'm not misrecollecting that. But I did that a few times, but mostly not for enterprise setups, but more for the SharePoint farms and things like that when you had demos and you set up environments like that. Luckily, back back in the day when I was exposed to these things, I was not the like the IT architect or IT pro uh, looking at the server setup. I was more the developer and solution architect looking at how to build the bits and pieces together when like the servers are already running. Which is why you know cloud first suits me very well because now when I manage infrastructure, I don't actually have to manage much of the hardware or the servers or setting things up. I can just say, I want this service, I want to tie it together with that service, and that's kind of the modern architecture of the cloud where you you architect and and put pieces together, but not the way we used to. So um, long answer to a short question. I'm not exposed to that. It's been a very long time since I promoted a server to a domain controller. And when I did, it was mostly for demos and like presentation purposes. When, as probably some of you listening in, and I know you usually can relate, when we were speakers back in the day talking about how to do things on SharePoint 2007, the, the beta version, uh, you would have a laptop with two external hard drives plugged in. One had one server, the other one had the other server because you couldn't run them at the same time from the same disk because the disks back then were so slow. So you had to have multiple USB or uh, Firewire, whatever you call them back then, plugged in and run some virtual machines. And you could, one virtual machine would be the domain controller, the other one would be the SharePoint servers, and you would kind of sign in that way. Um, good memories, not something I ever want to do again. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's that's my own exposure to setting those things up. Yeah, for, for me, it was sort of the same. I, I think we spent a lot of time back in the day setting those type of labs and, and, and development and demo environments. Then we didn't really need the on-premises that much because everything sort of went to the cloud. But recently, I've been, I've been setting up different demo lab environments with an on-premises AD almost on a weekly basis because you sort of need to test something like, like this, what we're discussing today the Azure AD Kerberos capability, but also other aspects. And, and for that, you still sort of need to rely 
on the real domain controller if there's workstations at play. So yes, you can still do DC promo, but there's a fancy graphical interface for that now in server manager. You just click next, next, next without understanding anything. No. Reboot, done. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> it's so much easier now. My, it, my memory is now spoiled. <laughs> yeah, it, it it takes about 10 minutes, then then you're good to go if if you do a clean setup with, with nothing existing already. So now the modern approach. You still do the same. You create an Azure storage, you create the file share, you copy whatever from the on-premises legacy file share to there. And the benefit obviously is that it's now in the cloud, it's backed up, it's it doesn't have a single point of failure, and you get all sorts of fancy things on top of security. But there's a new checkbox now when you, when you go to the settings of that file share. There's a setting for configuring Kerberos within the Azure portal. So you don't need to do the shady PowerShell thingies you had to do if you just wanted to get the on-premises permissions working to map. Now this is done under the hood for you. It takes a couple of minutes. And what happens in here, Microsoft has created something called the cloud ticket granting ticket. And back in the day when you mentioned the SharePoint on-prem and, and SQLs and Kerberos and all that, back in the day, you would still have the TGT, the ticket granting ticket with Kerberos in on-premises, and that was problematic. But now the cloud ticket granting ticket, and you don't really need to delve too deep into the details on that one. It does all sorts of trickery in the back end to synchronize the capability of authenticating against the on-premises AD domain controller. So Azure AD will then ask you to create a service principle uh, as, as an app registration to give the permission for that to complete the authentication for you. So with this sort of simple configuration, it takes you 10 minutes. What you can now do, you can migrate all your files to Azure file shares. You can set the permissions against your identities. And now if you want to mount those drives, you do not need the line of sight to an on-premises domain controller anymore because you're authenticating through Azure AD. So you just need internet access to Azure and that will then sort of pick up the authentication token and go back to your on-premises DC to check if this is allowed or not. That's so the essence of it. So do you then use RBAC or role-based access control to to define who can, like why identity? Imagine you have a file share and you have 1,000 employees and there are a group of admins or a group of project managers or whatever in, uh, in AAD and you say, well, this group or this security group should be delegated access to read and write into this file share. Is that something you then do then now using RBAC? So you use all the built-in capabilities? Great question. Yes, you can use RBAC. So you get a couple of new roles on the Azure side for granting contributor permissions on those file shares. But what you can also do, you can define the share permissions using Windows access control lists. And for this, obviously, when you migrate the files, you can use Robocopy to, to preserve those permissions, especially if you have, let's say, five terabytes of file files, maybe two million files in, in 200,000 directories. You don't, you don't really want to do that manually in Azure Portal anymore because you already have those permissions. So you will use Robocopy if you're doing this sort of a lift and shift. Or if you recall a command line tool 
I'm not sure how you pronounce this. It's the ICACLS. So I-C-A-C-L-S. That's the command line tool. Have you used that? Uh, no. I When you said Robocopy, uh, you know, my memories went back to Xcopy and, you know, <laughs> days of past, again, 15 years ago working with SharePoint. So I'm, I'm lost in, in history right now. No, I, have, I haven't used this one. How did you spell it again? So it's I-C-A-C-L-S. And I, I think I've heard somebody from Microsoft way, way back when mentioned this as iCackles. And it's a command line tool. It's, it's built into Windows, I think, since maybe Windows 7. Nobody talks about Windows list anymore, but, so let's just agree it's Windows 7. Uh, and it allows you to do mass or bulk changes to permissions on a single file, group of files, or a group of directories. And the, the interface obviously is a command line tool, but it's it's a bit old school, so you really need to check the parameters and the syntax to get it just right. Otherwise, you will mess up and maybe lock yourself out from the files, which you, obviously you can circumvent. So for the share permissions, you can use RBAC and just go with the modern way. Or if you still feel that you want to preserve whatever you had in on-prem, even if the file's in the cloud now, you need a way of mimicking or replicating those permissions with Robocopy or iCackles in the new home of your files. That's that's sort of the, the key here. So a couple of requirements for this. You do need Windows 10 or 11 Enterprise. Education is, is identical to Enterprise in this, this aspect. Uh, what do you normally run? I, Toby, I think you run Windows 11 at work, right? I'm, I'm on 11, yep. Yeah, so so same for me, all of my boxes are Windows 11. So so this is not a hard requirement in the sense because 10 and 11 both support it. But then the, the client workstations, they must be hybrid joined or Azure AD joined. There's no way around this. So what this means is that you have to have a specific authenticator method, uh, method in use. So password has sync, pass-through authentication or federated identities, meaning that those those devices are are joined to perhaps an on-prem AD or Azure AD, but they share the same identities, if you will. And if you have a have a cloud-only identity in there, this is not going to work because the Kerberos is going back to your on-prem AD. That's the key here. And finally, the workstations have to have a new registry key added to the Windows registry that we all love so dearly, called Cloud Kerberos Ticket Retrieval Enabled equals true or one. So you can use Intune or Logon Script or whatever to get this in place. That's that's really it. I've set this up a couple of times now. It works, but there's a lot of small things you need to troubleshoot, like when you're mapping the network drive. What's your preference of mapping a network drive? Do you open Windows File Explorer, go to the top menu and map from there, or do you open Windows Terminal and use NetUse or something else? So uh, most of the time I've, I've done NetUse, but it depends on what I'm mapping and like where I have the data to access that thing. You know, if, if I used to do that using a specific access key or I needed to, to use a specific credential, then NetUse was just convenient because it was easy to do, but you can do the same using the the built-in stuff, I think. 
some um, no preference. It's really just in the context of what I'm working on and what I'm working with that determines how I map a network drive. Yeah, it's the same for me. I've always used NetUse because by habit you had to do that before Windows was really there. But now I think the, the Windows 10 and 11 graphical network mapping capability in File Explorer, I, I think that's that's good enough that you can definitely use that too. So you will get weird errors if the configuration is not just right. What I mean by this is that you might get an error 58. It doesn't tell you anything. Then you start doing fiddling a bit on the network traffic, checking Azure logs, checking the storage account logs to figure out why it's not working. Is there a problem with the Kerberos ticket? Is there a problem with this or that? And finally, you need to have an outbound access to port 445 because that is where the, the, the network mapping happens over 445. Uh, so in a corporate environment, that's typically blocked. So you need to work around that. The registry key, the uh, the hybrid joint, Azure AD joint capabilities. So there's a lot of things you have to first position right before you get this relatively simple capability working the way it, it's intended to be used. All right. I, I think this uh, this is a pretty good background and, and story for for how to how to start using this. And I, I particularly like it's something that I didn't know is like with the ACLs and, and preserving those using the Robocopy tool is probably a, a good idea. And it's great for anyone tuning in to think about these things. It's like you say, when you migrate tons of data, if, if you have petabytes of data or, or terabytes of data and you, you want to move the, uh, these uh, bits and pieces of data or all of it to the cloud in one way or the other, uh, you don't want to kind of reinvent. And that's why I asked about role-based access control. Because if you need to start using that, then how does that differ from the ACLs you have on your Windows boxes? But the fact that you can bring those over and say, continue using those because we already have the permissions sorted, more or less, then then that that is something to definitely consider. And I, I really like that. I didn't know that. So that that is the key takeaway for me right now is if you're migrating all that data, take a look at how you can preserve the permissions and, and use what you already have, as opposed to, I heard someone saying that part of their migration journey was kind of restructuring the entire permission logic because they were using AAD. But now that seems like something they could have maybe considered in uh, like moving file share data. It might've been something they could consider if they preserved the ACLs. Exactly. And one last, perhaps not, not a tiny thing, but something you need to account for is that now if you're sitting on that Windows 10 11 workstation, you're sitting in a cafe, you want to access the network drive, it has perhaps been mapped for you already automatically, but it doesn't work. One tiny thing you have to fix is that for those authentication requests that are coming from wherever, you cannot enforce MFA for those Azure AD accounts for that usage, because NetUse and, and Windows File Explorer, they do not support MFA. So they only support the classic sort of legacy authentication, username and password. So you have to have an exception rule in your conditional access typically that allows access to that file share from perhaps managed devices without enforcing MFA. So it's it's an interesting approach because there's all sorts of things you have to account for and that you have to configure. But once this is this is put in place, 
it's almost like magic because you have the same old style network drive. It just works in the cloud and you can start retiring whatever on-premises stuff you still have, but you still have those files available for you. And eventually perhaps you have to do something about those files and get rid of them, push them to SharePoint or Teams or whatever. But the next 20 years, you can just keep them there unless obviously you're happy in, in keeping the legacy bit part of the modern platform. Alrighty. So this was all we had on Azure Files with Azure AD Kerberos. We'll add a couple of interesting links in the show notes. If you want to configure this, Microsoft had a fairly good guide on this, but there's a lot of lot of moving parts in there. So we'll we'll try to put those in, in proper order in the show notes to to get you started on this one. I, I thought you were gonna say if so if you need if you need help on this, if you need to do this, then call UC because he's a great guy. He loves to do this. <laughs> Herbros is awesome. Moving file shares, it's the most engaging and fun project he knows. <laughs> this this sort of reminds me, uh, if you recall, when Y2K was a big thing in 1999, then you had all these people working in the COBOL and, and you would call them and ask them to unretire from their retirement to come and fix whatever legacy <laughs> things. I think. 10, 15, 20 years from now, both you and me will be getting calls on on-premises SharePoint or Kerberos file shares and whatnot. It needs to be fixed now. Can you come and help? Because you're the <laughs> only, only, only ones who recall this old stuff. <laughs> Alrighty, the last bit, the unexpected question. So last time we had a guest, so it wasn't you or me who got the question. I think this week, Toby, it will be your turn to ask me the question. All right, so I've got a question that I was thinking a lot about, maybe more in a philosophical sense, and I, you know, over a glass of wine and start thinking about this. Uh, so obviously my answers will vary, but I'm going to ask you the question. And the question is, in one single sentence, how would you sum up the internet? Interesting and tough question. I've tried with all of my kids, so I, I have three boys, and, and, and when they were really, really young, I've tried with all of them reading a book called Mommy, Why Is There a Server at Home? <laughs> to, to try to try to explain that, that this is the children's reason. books. <laughs> yeah, this, this is the reason we have on premises and it didn't really, really work out. Perhaps by instinct, I've, I would go into my consultant mode, try and explain that the internet is, is a mixture of, of diverse networks connected by and unified agreeable protocols that allow us to 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 consume and 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 produce information for anybody but that might be too boring so perhaps more like it's a platform that allows you to look at cat pictures without posting them yourself all right <laughs> yeah that's a it's a nice summary it's a platform to see pictures of other people's cats <laughs> yes exactly all righty. Again, thanks for tuning in. We'll have a fresh episode for you again next week on Wednesday, and it's not going to be about Kerberos. All right. See you then.